0: You will turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis 4, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 16, Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me out today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray.
1: Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity that we do have to come and to gather before you and to think about uh, the scriptures that you have given to us today. We know that you are a good God who gives us what we do not deserve, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to be attentive to your words today, uh, to think uh, clearly about the scriptures that you have given to us. We ask that you would help us to think your thoughts after you and that you would uh, make uh, make your scriptures plain to us and, and give us a will to obey your words. We thank you for all you do. In your Son's name I pray. Amen. Now, last week we talked about this passage uh, that is discussing the first murder. In some ways it's appropriate to describe this passage as a tale of two seeds. A Tale of Two Offsprings, we, we, we tried to put forward a case that uh, when we think about this passage in general, really this passage is put in the scriptures primarily to be an elaboration on what we're going to find in the cursing of the serpent. So Genesis 3.15, when, when God curses the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall uh, bruise his heel. Uh, when we think about what's happening there in Genesis 3.15, we said last week that this isn't just a, an elaboration of sorts about why uh, human beings are afraid of snakes in general. Uh, for the most part, uh, what this is is this word offspring or seed," depending on your translation is a collective singular and what that means is that uh, it's a it's a word that can function as both a single or a uh, singular word uh, making reference to a single person or it can be, make reference to a group of individuals so when you think about the word offspring, I say her offspring does that mean one? son in particular, or one daughter in particular, or does it mean all of them? Well, it could mean both. And one of the things that the scriptures do is they play on this tension there between the word. Is it a single singular word or a plural word? And one of the things that you're going to find is what this passage does is it introduces two humanities that are going to be at work in the world. You're going to have uh, the offspring of the serpent or, or the uh, the individuals who are who are... Being influenced or under the power of the evil one. Who are going to make war against the righteous. And you're going to see that there's a fundamentally religious war. That's introduced in Genesis 3.15. That's going to play itself out in Genesis 4. Uh, so this is in, in, in a very real sense. The first instance of religious persecution. That you're going to find in the Bible. That's what we talked about last week. Uh, so we, we, we discussed the reality of this religious war. We discussed. Uh, The the reason for God's rejection of Cain's uh, offering, Uh, God did not uh, reject Cain's offering simply because it was uh, uh, an offering of the fruit of the ground. Uh, That would be the kind of thing that he ought to do on the basis of law. We walked through uh, Leviticus 2 and some of the other passages within the Old Covenant law and and said that the point was not that Abel's offering was better because it was an animal sacrifice over and against a grain offering. Um, There are prescriptions in Leviticus that describe both of those things. So we we looked through some of the opening chapters of Leviticus and saw saw those, that there are different types of offerings. The point is that it was rejected because it was not offered in faith, in obedience to the kind of commands that God has given. So we see with uh, uh, Abel that he gives an offering before the Lord that the Lord uh, respects because he does so with a heart of faith, uh, and he does so by giving the best that he has, the firstborn, and uh, along with the fast, fat portions. These are phrases that are going to stick out to you and as you read the law. So he he offers the offering in faith. Uh, Cain, on the other hand, presumably just gives God whatever he wants to give him, and and expects God to be absolutely pleased with that, even though uh, there's a lot of prep work that goes into offering a, an offering of the fruit of the ground. You don't just uh, slop something together. So uh, the, the the issue there is the manner and the attitude and the uh, and, and the reality of faithfulness that's at work uh, within the offerings itself. Uh, all of those things come into play. So as we've talked about this passage last week, we've said that it's uh, in the first instance a relig- uh, example of religious conflict we're going to see running through the pages of Scripture, climaxing in the death of Jesus Christ and the conquering of the serpent by Jesus in a final way. Although you see a reality of this same kind of battle at work throughout all ages of history. Uh, we've talked about it under that kind of framework. We've talked about it uh, under the framework of being the first instance of murder and tried to think about some of the uh, implications of that as it relates to the relationship between anger and murder, the relationship between individual murder and Satan's uh, diabolical plan to, to kill us. So we've thought through some of those things, and today it might be helpful as we continue uh, with our passage to, to think through some principles of confrontation that are going to be found within this passage itself. And so there's a variety of things that are happening here. I'm going to try to get to as much as we can get to. Uh, But when when we think about uh, what's happening here, you definitely see uh, the Lord playing the role of counselor and judge. And we ought to see what kind of uh, principles we can learn from that as well. So the first thing that we're going to see today in our second look at this passage is uh, the confronting of the seed of the serpent. So... Verse 9, the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said to him, I do not know, am I my brother's uh, keeper? Now, as we think about this confrontation that the Lord uh, makes to the seed of the serpent, uh, one of the things we ought to realize at the very outset is the importance of not uh, shel- shelving sin. Um, the Lord—the reality is—the Lord The reality is the Lord doesn't just overlook Cain's. Transgression, or the sea of the serpent's transgression in this sort of passage. He uh, pursues Cain in the midst of his uh, sinfulness, in the midst of his rebellion, and this is really the expectation the whole Bible gives to us. Uh, if you read plenty of uh, if you if you read books, if you read counseling books, you read marriage counseling books. You know, often there's a, a perspective that is given to people that. What you need to do is, you know, you don't just confront every time someone sins. What you need to do is you need to just wait until you observe a pattern and a habit. And I mean, you don't want to be obnoxious and overbearing and hypercritical and everything else. What you need to do is wait and see if there's a pattern. And only once that gets to a point where you see a, a significant pattern, then you might want to uh, prayerfully step in and, and, and put forward some sort of uh, confirmation or, or uh, confrontation as far as that goes. Uh, but the reality is that, that doesn't seem to be the scriptural impulse uh, for one and for two. It just really doesn't seem to be all that wise to wait until a person is mastered by a pattern of sin uh, and uh, caught in the grasp of, uh, uh, of sin in that sort of way. And then you, then you, at the last minute, you talk to them about it uh, when you could have probably spared them a lot of uh, bad practice and habit by doing so early. The reality is, uh, for the Christian, Matthew eighteen fifteen says, If you... Your brother sins against you. You go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. There isn't this sort of laying out uh, sin and seeing if it's really bad and um, making sure that you observe a pattern or anything else. The reality is that all sin is significant and all sin is going to kill you. And all sin is ultimately an offense against the Holy God, whether big sins or little sin. Uh, And when you fail at this basic duty, to confront your brothers and sisters, whether you're talking about something significant or something small, uh, things, they really don't get better. They just get worse. Uh, I mean, if you put... I talked about the importance of not shelving sin. If you if you put food on a shelf and you just let it sit there, what's going to happen? It's going to stink and smell up your whole house. And, and often when we observe a lot of the relationships that we have in general, you think about the way that relationships work uh, in whatever capacity. I mean, if you just sit on things... Uh, you know, what's going to happen is there's plenty of people who just sit on things for years and years and years and years and don't talk about it and don't bring it up. And, 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 and all that really happens is if you let that food sit there, it just rots and smells and starts to stink. And and, and when we just sit on things like that and we don't fulfill our basic responsibilities that God uh, calls us to do, what happens is um, you're going to find that there's going to be a growing distance that forms between you and other people that's just going to get worse and worse and worse and it's not really going to go away so it's just going to sit there uh, and you might wake up 40 years later and realize i have no idea who this person is and i can't stand them i don't like them uh, and we've done this thing for the kids for long enough and i'm done with it at this point and so the point the point there is just to say that food on the shelf doesn't get better with age um it gets worse. Now, uh, when you observe the Christian reaction to confrontation in general, I'd I'd say it's often, and I've said this on different occasions, but it's often an odd spectacle to watch um, the general Christian reaction to the idea of confrontation. So uh, on the one hand, it's something that we naturally do all the time. It's something that we do effortlessly without thinking about it. Uh, But then on the other hand, When you speak of confronting sin, everyone seems to have this tendency to panic. Uh, So it's very interesting to watch uh, people who have spent years and years and years instantaneously confronting violations of their preferences, whether real or perceived. And then all of a sudden, these same people will freeze up when they find out that one of their children is looking at pornography fundamentally unable to either have the courage to have a simple conversation or tongue-tied as to how to proceed. And so this is a this is an interesting dynamic to watch and to pay attention to and to learn about because it gives you a lot of insight into the way in which sin functions and is at work in our own heart. So in that kind of situation, we really do have rules that we have generally give to people on how to proceed when you're going to confront someone. And I'm sure that you've heard these kind of rules, and I'm going to make mention of them. But we, we generally have these rules about how to proceed in general. Uh, you, you know, you, you think about how are you going to do this. And, you know, I, I know that uh, Pastor Kevin and I have even talked with people about... Uh, who are just so nervous about the idea of just having a simple conversation with someone about something that they perceive to be sinful in certain ways. And so we've had conversations with individuals about it. And typically, you know, you, you make sure that you pray sufficiently before you speak. You rehearse what you're going to say. You run uh, what you're going to say by some wise people, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'm not saying that those that kind of plan when someone's in is not generally wise. I, I'm just pointing out that it's strange to have To watch, um, it's strange to watch us at times because we have this paralyzing fear about having normal conversations when it relates to something that is a clear violation of God's word. But when your wife doesn't do the dishes as you asked or your husband fails to respond with the appropriate level of excitement to the news that you just gave to him. We seem to have no problem whatsoever confronting the injustice of it all, and no one thinks to pray and write a thoughtful and heartfelt letter that they're going to run by several trusted friends and awkwardly read that letter in front of the in front of the person that they're going to confront, and those kind of situations. So, and so, what I'm just trying to say is, the reality is that you know, as we think about confronting, we we, we do it all the time. We do it quite naturally, uh, but then. When it, when it deals with our preferences or things that w- that are we, we really don't think are moral in any way, we can get really intent on absolutely stamping out those sorts of actions. But then when it comes to sin, uh, there is a temptation that we often have to just freeze up and we don't quite know what to do. And we, we totally leave the realm of having any sort of normal conversation and you... You walk up to someone and you awkwardly read a script to them, and then you leave and hope they received it well. And you think that you've done something uh, good at that point. When you know the, the reality is that that isn't. I mean, what's happening there? Well, what's happening there is, frankly, it's just it's a lot easier to enforce our kingdom come and to enforce our will be done than it is to enforce God's kingdom coming and God's will being done. And so we ought to pay attention to these sorts of things. How do you how do you confront? How do you confront? What does the Lord do? Starts with questions, doesn't he? Now, these are the kind of questions that God starts with, but he knows how to... It's not as if God doesn't know the answer, but even God, not, God does know the answers to, to this sort of question, and he's giving uh, Cain an opportunity to... Uh, confess something, uh, you, you realize that the whole thing is a gracious thing on the part of the Lord to to, to graciously pursue Cain and not just leave him in his uh, stubborn, distant rebellion from God, but to uh, to speak with him. But the Lord starts with questions, and generally speaking, we, we're wise to start with questions too, uh, and for different reasons than the Lord has in this sort of passage, uh, but also for the same reasons that the Lord has in this passage. And so the reality is when you read Proverbs eighteen thirteen, what does it say? One gives an answer before he hears. It's folly and shame to him. What do we do when we confront often? If we're trying to confront sin, what do we do? We, we read our speech, don't we? Isn't that how you start? You go and you, you got your speech, you wrote your speech, and, and then you checked your speech by a bunch of people, and then you unload your speech in front of the uh, person that you're confronting. What happens if it's inaccurate? What do you do then? But you rip it up and you say, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? Well, no, uh, the reality is, uh, generally speaking, it's better when you're going to confront someone. Uh, and if we can learn anything <laughs> about confronting, it's better to start with a question and not a statement. Like, save the speech. Save the speech until you get more information. Uh, if one gives an answer before he hears, it's in shame to him. The best way to confront people, in general, whether you're talking about a preference, whether you're talking about... Uh, some kind of uh, wisdom decision, whether you're talking about something that's clearly sinful. The reality is it's best to start by asking some questions and, and, and genuinely allow the information that they're going to give to change your perspective of what just happened. And so uh, oftentimes we can be very, very quick to uh, step into a situation Provide all the answers and solutions that we think that we should give. when we really don't understand this situation very well at all. And we might do well to take the role of a listener for a little bit. And if we do take the role of a listener for a little bit, we might find that we don't have anything that we need to say at all, uh, even. You know, it could be that, you know... After listening, I trade one speech for another speech, uh, but then the reality is it might be also true that, after listening a little bit, I realized that this was all just a big misunderstanding, and there 's nothing really to say here. Thank you for clarifying things for me. The um, Bible speaks about this in many ways. know this my beloved brothers let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger uh, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires and so when you think about uh, confronting, one of the things we realize is that the Lord goes to confront the seed of the serpent. Um, he does so because sin can't just be shelved. You can't just overlook it. You have to deal with sin. Uh, and it's interesting to note that even as he does it, he starts with asking questions. Questions he no doubt knows uh, the answer to, uh, but but are instructive to us in a wide variety of ways. Uh, the reality is that when we sin against um, our Maker, it has a destabilizing effect on us. And it has a destabilizing effect on like us as it relates to our relationship with God. What do you do when you sin? What do you do? Typically, don't want to pray right away. Typically, feel embarrassed. You, you typically try to hold on to it for a little bit. Your impulse isn't to immediately run from God; it's to hide from God and shame. And what do you? How do you relate to other people? Don't you do the same kind of thing? You want to hide and shame from them. Isn't the same thing that's happening with Cain here? What happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? Isn't it the same sort of thing when they sin against God? What do they do? They go and they hide themselves. They distance themselves from God. What does God do? He graciously takes the initiative in both cases to pursue them. What is that? What do we learn from that? Isn't that the same thing Matthew 18 is saying? If you see your brother sin against you, what do you do? You go pout. Go pout and have a pity party. And wait for them to come and talk to you. Because after all, they're the one who's in the wrong anyways. And they and, and, and don't nobody treat you like that and all that. Isn't that how we, we think about these things? You sin against me. I'm going to wait over here. You come up whenever you're ready and we'll deal with it. And yeah, sure, I'll be willing to forgive you. But you better initiate it. What does the Bible do? What does the Bible do? God goes after him. God's the one who's been uh, uh, whose priorities and values have uh, been sinned against him. In both cases, God's the primary one offended in every sin. God takes the initiative to restore uh, the relationship to whatever degree that that's possible in both of these kind of situations. So well, the first thing that we see as we think about this passage is the uh, the Lord confronting the seed of the serpent. Um, the second thing that we're going to see here is uh, even within that is uh, God confronting the seed of the serpent and, and you're going to see the seed of the serpent's obstacle obfuscation, if you want to use a big word there, uh, but then uh, essentially, what the seed of the serpent does is he responds to God by deflecting the issue. So he says to God, "I don't, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper?" That's his response. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, the reality is, Cain knows very clearly. If anyone knows where Abel is, Cain knows very clearly where his brother is. He's the one who killed him. And, you know, after you kill people, they don't really have the ability to change location anymore. That's kind of a feature of being dead. So if you're dead, you can't move. You can't go anywhere. There's nowhere to go there. So uh, of all the people who are alive at this point in the history of the world, Cain is the only human being who actually does know exactly where his brother is uh, with a great degree of certainty as far as that goes. Uh, But uh, one of the things that he does after he's confronted, you realize he's going to try to muddy the waters, so to speak. So instead of owning up to what he does, functionally, he's lying by saying, I don't know. But not not only does he lie, you have to understand this isn't just a straightforward lie. I don't know the end. What does he do? He says, I don't know. And then he goes on the attack. Right. Am I my brother's keeper? What is he saying? Like. Isn't it kind of unrealistic of you to expect me to know where my brother is? Am I supposed to just follow him around like a, a puppy? I don't know if they had like domestic pets at that time, but essentially that's uh, something along the lines of what he's saying should I just follow him around uh, everywhere he goes and make sure he's safe and is that what you're expecting of me isn't this kind of a strange question that you're asking to me God I can't believe that you would ask me this sort of question as if as if I am expected to know another human being's location at any uh, point in time uh, it is kind of an ironic Play on words that Cain is doing here where he says essentially am I am I the shepherd shepherd right so you remember how Abel's described as keeper of the sheep and so when Cain says am I my brother's keeper essentially what he's saying is am I the shepherd' shepherd now on the face of it uh, I think you probably you've probably been like me and you probably heard plenty of uh, sermons along these lines uh, that uh, where many pastors have said well the implied answer is yes there Yes, of course, you're your brother's keeper. That's exactly what you're meant to do. Uh, and and I would say, well, uh, maybe that's a little much. Uh, there doesn't seem to be anything in the law that requires individuals to to be constantly aware of the presence and the location of other people. Um, it, you know, if if you're charged to be a shepherd of the sheep, then in that kind of way. In a physical sense, in that kind of way, you are kind of charged to know what's happening with them and responsible for their location and their well-being. And that's kind of a full-time job as far as that goes. But on the face of it, there really doesn't seem to be a command in the law that requires uh, us to watch uh, each one of our brothers with that kind of uh, vigilance, uh, vigilance as far as that goes. Uh, but then I, I think we learned something maybe a bit different than that. I mean, th- there is a the reality that the Christian life is meant to be other-centered. We are meant to be aware of other people, put other people's uh, desires and preferences and concerns uh, above our own. Uh, the more other-centered you, you are in general, the more you are going to be aware of where they're at at any given point in time. Maybe not to uh, the level of... Uh, Precision that Cain thinks he's being asked here, but then I think we learned something maybe a bit different. And the reality is, when people when you confront people, they frequently don't stay on the defensive, do they? Uh, I mean, I think that you know, as you think about your own relationships and when you're when you when you are talking to people, it's often a very strange kind of thing when you ask simple questions and people get very emotional about asking very simple questions very quickly. Uh, almost as if it's an, like a, a crazy question to ask them. Um, you know, when you think about that, that often is an indication that you're going to find in general, just about human nature, that if you ask a simple question and a person gets indignant about it and acts like you're being nit crazy and nuts, it might be possible in that moment that they're hiding something. And that's why that they're responding and reacting in that sort of way. And I think you see a perfect example of this, basic human trait at work in Cain here. Um, God asked him a simple question, and and Cain gets indignant with God and asks, asks him if, um, uh, and, and asks if God is being unjust to ask him this question. And that might tell you a little bit about people in general, that maybe there's something going on here uh, that, you know, I think I could probably ask this question to 10 other people, and they wouldn't respond that way. What are you hiding? Well, the reality is, over and over and over again, in the Bible, you'll you'll see that, the wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. When you, you know, There's often, like, one of the effects of sin in our own heart, and our own life is, uh, you know, you often think that people are out to get you in a way that they might not be even thinking about you. Uh, you know, we all have lives that are com- complex, and we all have concerns and cares that... Are weighing upon us, and and sometimes we have a tendency to think that whatever particular events or circumstances in our life are universally shared as pressing priorities and concerns about everyone uh, with everyone else. But uh, the reality is, when we do sin, we have this tendency because of the guilt and the shame that we're feeling uh, to view simple, normal, natural questions that people might give through a lens of suspicion. So one of the the Reality was when God was going to exile his people, uh, he's that him exiling him, he used foreign armies to do to, to take them out of the promised land and enslave them in other countries. And one of the judgments of God upon people after they sin is that um, it said of uh, people in the midst of the exile that they would be put to flight at the sound of a relief. And so that's a that's a living example of this principle. The wicked are fleeing when no one pursues. You hear a leaf rustle, you're running, and there's actually nothing happening there. That may have just been an acorn that fell on top of the leaf, and you're destabilized. And so that's, I think that's one of the things that you're seeing, even within this uh, passage itself, is that God confronts uh, Cain of his sin, and instead of just uh, answering the question in an honest manner, he... He lies and then he turns on God and acts as if God is, is uh, putting forward some kind of unjust uh, standard. Which, I mean, when you really stop and think about it, isn't, isn't that kind of crazy to respond to God in that way? Like, if, if you have a good relationship with God at this point, then wouldn't you think the best of God at that point? And, and And wouldn't you phrase it in a bit of a different way and... And maybe wouldn't you answer it in a bit of a more calm way, but this is the way sin works in our own hearts. So, um, first thing we see is con- confronting the seed of the serpent. Second thing we're going to see here is cursing the seed of the serpent. Uh, so, the curse of the seed of the serpent, the Lord said, what have you done? Uh, so... God knows that he's lying to them. God is omniscient. He sees all. He is not asking the question to gain information in any way. He's asking the question as a gracious means to give uh, the seed of a serpent an opportunity to uh, confess what he has done and to forsake it. But uh, the Lord, uh, Cain doesn't respond to the confrontation well. So the Lord lets him know exactly what he knows. And this is a missed opportunity that he had. But the... The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you walk, work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you as strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, um, the reality is just like uh, sin can't be shelved. Sin can't go unpunished. So it, we don't serve the kind of God uh, which is comparable to our notions of Santa Claus who was up there in the sky uh, winking at sin. Oh, you're a, uh, okay, you're a naughty boy, but you did a little good act, so I'm going to ignore all that and give you a present anyways. And that's not the kind of God that we serve. We serve the kind of God who hates sin. And we'll not just let it go. Uh, we'll not just overlook it. I mean, there might be many times in our life where we uh, think that we're getting away with things. Uh, the reality is when you think about the way that the world works, um, you do have examples in the Bible of Nadab and Abihu offering a strange fire before the Lord. And God causes uh, fire to consume them. Uh, So God hates uh, worship that we uh, present to him that is violating and adding to the elements of worship that he tells us to do. Uh, But the reality is there's church after church after church all over the country who who are doing far worse than Nadab and Abihu and and aren't getting consumed from fire in heaven. And so what's going on with that? Well, the reality is it's not as if God is overlooking it. Uh, It's not as if it's not going to go unpunished uh, the reality is we have examples of it of, of direct and immediate punishment but we all one day are facing the day when God will come and uh, flaming fire and fury with his angels to exact vengeance on the earth and so what, the reality is we should never be individuals who are operating from vengeance why because vengeance is bad well, no, not because vengeance is bad, because vengeance isn't our responsibility. We, we You leave it to God who will avenge uh, the righteous in that kind of way. So the, the reality is that vengeance or repayment for sin is not bad. It's just not a human prerogative to mete it out in any kind of... Uh, exact uh, sort of way, uh, but then uh, the reality is you can't look at the world and say, well, God's not immediately acting in judgment, therefore He never will. No, the reality is we all face a day we're going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for the things that we've done. Uh, sin's not going to go unpunished. God doesn't just let it go. Oh, you killed Him. Well, uh, that's not good. Uh, that that wasn't a very nice thing to do, Cain. I can't believe that you would do that. Uh, uh, that, that just isn't very nice. Um, so... Just try not to do that anymore, man, because uh, that, that's mean. Like, um, I don't want you to do that to me or anyone else. That isn't the way that the Lord approaches this sort of thing. Um, and not just because God can't be killed by man, but uh, the reality is that sin can't go unpunished. The Lord said, what is it you've done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Uh, now, it response to this uh, reality that sin isn't going to go unpunished, uh, you you see that God uh, enacts a particular form of judgment upon Cain that uh, often can be confusing if you think about it. I I, I haven't quite known, you know, as I've studied this passage, uh, there there have been times where I haven't really known what to make of the kind of uh, punishment that's given here. So verse eleven says, "And now your curse from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand, when you work the la- ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so as I've looked at that, I thought, well, what's actually happening there? Is God saying to Cain that uniquely, when Cain plants crops, um, planting the crops like he's going to change. Uh, universal laws of the harvest, just with, in some sort of supernatural way, peculiarly with reference to Cain's, such that, you know, if you take Cain's crops that Cain is going to put in the ground one year, and you take Adam's crops that Adam's going to put in the ground that same year, uh, they can be in the same kind of location, uh, even. But then Cain's crops are going to be like pitiful and not really as fruitful as Adam's. Is that the kind of curse that's happened here? And, and maybe upon the first reading of this, that might be what you conclude. Uh, but then I, I think probably what's happening more is, is not so much that, that Cain is just going to have a, what do you say? A, you have a green thumb if you're a good gardener. And if you don't, then presumably what you have a brown thumb or something like, that? I don't know how that works. So it's like, it all comes up dead or something like that. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think uh, what's actually happening in this passage is that God is sentencing him to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And if you're a fugitive and a wandering on the earth, what does that mean you can't do? Settle down and plant things and expect to enjoy them without fear. So the reality is, I think what's happening with this curse is that God is sentencing Cain to be a fugitive and a wanderer. Like, that's going to be his punishment. And in a certain sense, it's not really even like a punishment that God is putting on Cain, so much as it is uh, the reality of what you just did. Do you understand? So, like, the reality is what Cain just did was he just killed his brother. So, what do you think all the rest of the human beings on the planet are going to think about Cain? Like they're gonna think, don't get too close to that guy. right? So uh, now I mean even within the law there's uh, uh, there is this uh, avenger of blood concept and there's cities of refuge that are put throughout the law uh, such that you know there's um, if you murder someone unjustly, then there's a prescription, a formula. Uh, that is put forward there that uh, has procedures which are going to regulate the uh, setting of right, these certain wrongs. But the reality here is just that in a certain sense, God is just describing, I think all that's happening here is God's just describing to uh, Cain what his life is going to be like at this point. And what his life is going to be like at this point is when you take someone's blood like that, one of the things that you have to realize is that, Every sane person around you is going to view you as a threat and is going to realize that you have done something so wrong that they're going to be nervous around you. And so, like in a certain sense, I, I really don't think that this um, uh, cursing of the serpent a- has really much of anything to do with God actively giving him any kind of temporal punishment other than the natural consequence of... Of his actions, and so the reality is, one thing that we don't don't often think about as it relates to the effect of sin in our life, um, there are both vertical penalties for sin, meaning penalties related to God, and then there's also horizontal penalties for sin that uh, are meant to remind us of the vertical problems. In in a primary way. So, I mean, the the reality is when Adam and Eve sin against each other, what happens? They they hide themselves from the Lord, but they also distrust each other. You understand? So, uh, you know, if you're Adam and Eve at that point, there's two things that are happening. One, you've just, like, broken a relationship with God. But if you're sane, if you're Adam and Eve and you're sane... Like, the reality is, like, Adam ought to look at this woman and say, if you would sin against God in that way, you're going to sin against me in that way too. And she ought to look at him and say, if you would just go along with it and follow me in my stupid plan. Like, the reality is, like, how can I trust you to be a good leader? Because you've already shown me what you're made of. You're, you're, you don't follow blindly into sin. So the reality is when we sin against God, the problem is that we uh, – you can sin against God, but then that makes other people distrust you too, and it destabilizes you too. And so like, one of the you – know, there are decisions that we can make in life that are often remarkably selfish, and in the first instance, they're sinning against God. Uh, but in the second instance, you, they they have they can have uh, profound and dramatic effects on our experience and our relationship with other people in this kind of way. So, uh, you might notice that like, what Cain does at this point, and God sends them to a life of wandering. Um, you know, what's going to happen? Well, this example of the wicked fleeing when maybe no one's necessary. There there might be people pursuing, but you don't know, but you're going to be destabilized. You're not going to be able to sit down and enjoy a crop because you're going to be worried. You're always going to be looking over your shoulder to see who's coming for you. Uh, So what Cain ends up doing is he settles in Nod east of Eden and builds a city there and everything else. He gets a sufficient distance away. And is he violating God's Prescription? There, he's to be a fugitive and wondering No, I think God's just describing what his life is going to be like. He's going to always be looking over his shoulder and wondering who's out to get him. And and I mean, I think you you know we you can think of plenty of people who have run-ins with the law who have this same kind of experience. I mean, you know, you you steal something, uh, you commit a crime, you know. What do you think your life's going to be like for the rest of your life? Well, it might be that you relocate. You might even go to a different country or something like that and get away from this uh, legal issue you have. But the reality is, like, one of the consequences of sin is you might spend the rest of your life every time you hear a police siren think they're coming for you. And that is essentially what Cain's life's going to be like at that point. That is a temporal punishment of sin that is meant to remind us of The eternal uh, realities that we face that we're not going to get away with this thing. And you might, you know, through constant paranoia and vigilance. Constant paranoia and constant vigilance, you may get away with it on a human level. But that you may that that's a miserable life for one. Uh, But then for two, you're not going to get away with it eternally. Um, What is the seed of the serpent's response to this curse? How does he respond? Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In a certain sense, it's kind of funny because God doesn't really actually do anything to him. <laughs> uh, he just said, he just describes what his life is going to be like at this point. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, uh, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Uh, what is what is happening here? What is happening here? Um, when you think about this, one of the things that is um, is kind of humorous about it, really, when you think about it, is that you have a person who's just murdered someone, and now he's afraid that he's going to get murdered, too. You know, so like you just killed your brother. And God doesn't kill you immediately. And he doesn't. Get your family to come and execute capital punishment on you. It seems like what he does is he shows you grace. But even in showing you grace, what that means is you're going to be fundamentally destabilized in your mind, living the rest of your life worried and afraid about what's going to happen to you. But you you just killed your brother. God didn't hold you immediately account for it. And you're thinking he's done something wrong to you. Like you're thinking that he's done something wrong to you when he he didn't execute any kind of immediate judgment on you as far as that's concerned so you with the seed of the serpent's response to the the curse uh saying hey my punishment's greater than i could bear uh you know you you owe me something you need to fix all this uh like i realize now that no one's going to trust me and you need to step in you need to um you need to make it all better and you need to uh, you need to fix it all, and, and and this just shows us something of the blindness of sin as it relates to all of us. I mean, sin is blinding, and, and I mean, you know, the, the reality is we live in a kind of society where no one wants to take any sort of reasonable responsibility for their actions in any kind of way. And, and you know, you, you can just watch the news, and you can hear plenty of people who are um, – Lamenting and fussing about uh, this same sort of thing I read a news article recently. Uh, I probably shouldn't read news articles ever, but I did read a news article uh, recently that was kind of funny you had um you you hadn't well it's tragic I shouldn't describe it as funny because it's tragic, but then at the same time it's it's uh, interesting it really is interesting to have a situation where a man steals a car and gets shot and killed and you have a news article of his sister looking at that situation and describing how unjust it is that he's just trying to lift a car and you're going to shoot him and that's totally out of proportion to what he's doing and everything else and and the reality is that like look come on um I don't recommend that if someone steals your car, you shoot them. Don't do that. But then at the same time, don't steal cars and you might not have to worry about someone responding poorly to you taking their property. So like, you know, the reality is here, you know, if you're a cane in this situation, don't if you didn't murder Abel, you wouldn't have to spend the rest of your life worrying about how people are going to respond to that sort of thing, who love him. So, like, and, and it's not like the world's responsibility or even God's responsibility to protect you from all the possible outcomes of your horrible choice. So, I mean, when you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap to the flesh corruption. And it's like you you can't always predict the outcome as the point. And, and what you can't do is you can't sin and then expect everyone to... Keep anyone else from sinning against you. That isn't the way these things work. Uh, so instead of just uh, owning that he's done something wrong, uh, what, do you see, what you see happen is that, that this confrontation is going from bad to worse. He originally lies about what he's done. I don't know where my brother is, and you're kind of crazy to ask me, God. Um, not only that, not only does he like lie about it and kind of treat God as if he's crazy for asking... When God just describes to him the natural consequences of his action, Cain seems to think that uh, it's God's responsibility to protect him from all the natural outworkings of of his sin. Uh, So you have an entitled kind of response from start to finish. I mean, you remember this is the same person who seems to think that he can offer to the Lord any sacrifice he wants, and if God doesn't immediately accept it, um, then God is somehow unjust in oppressing him. And I mean, Cain's basically a millennial, if you want to understand uh, what Cain is. That's what we're talking about. But um, Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. What's the problem? What's the problem? Well, it's twofold, isn't it? Today you've driven me away from the ground and from your face I'm going to be hidden. So like the reality is Adam and Eve were, as a result of their sin, were driven away from the Lord uh, they're cast out of Eden. Instead of walking and talking with God in the cool of the day, an uh, angel going to guard their flaming sword. And so there, there's already a distance between the people um, that are alive and Eden as a result of sin. But then what happens here is you see further separation that's happening. So further sin separates us from God. So even further, doesn't it? So if Eden is pictured as where God is, the original sin casts them out of that, breaks the relationship. They're pushed out of Eden, they can't go back in because of the angel with the flaming sword. What does further sin do? Pushes him further and further away, not only from God and from other people. That's the point. So so Cain's looking at it and he's saying, yeah, I just sinned again. Now I'm going to be, we already got thrown out of the garden. I presumably he wasn't there, but the mom and dad got thrown out of the garden. We already can't, we're trying to get as close as we can get, but now I'm going to be pushed away even further and I'm going to be pushed away from Even where they're at. And and I'm going to be afraid the rest of my life because of what I did. Because someone might try to uh, kill me like I killed him. And so like the reality is that that's how sin works. But it doesn't just stop there, does it? I mean, every single time that you harden your heart and you persist in rebellion against sin, what happens? Doesn't it push you further and further and further away from God to, to the point where, you know, many times we don't know where we're going to end up even Uh, So, I mean, sin's a liar. It it promises the path of life. Uh, When you think about the way sin works, I mean, we are tempted to think that God is withholding from us the good and that his commands are needlessly restrictive and they're preventing us from experiencing some sort of pleasure that we think that we need or that we think is valuable to us or that uh, we absolutely have to have. And uh, so uh, the the reality is that sin does promise pleasure for a time, uh, but then it leaves you further and further away from God. And in all of sin, the way it works is you have the law of diminishing returns, don't you? So what might be instantaneously good and nice, you end up with guilt and shame and condemnation. And the more and more that you feed it, the further you get, the more destabilized you get, the more worried you get, the more you're constantly looking over your shoulder. Uh, wondering what kind of consequences are going to come your way. Uh, You might end up, uh, the more that you hold on to sin, the more that you're being pushed further and further away from God uh, and not really knowing where you're going to end up there. So uh, instead of just owning that he's done something wrong, confessing it, uh, seeking to forsake it, and trying to restore relationships with him and others, with God and others, what you see is... uh, Cain expects God's going to instantaneously offer any uh, accept any offering that he receives to him on his own terms instead of on God's terms. God doesn't do that. He responds uh, poorly by killing his brother, but then when God confronts him about that, he's going to respond more poorly and more poorly. He's going to lie. He's going to accuse God of, of um, asking an unreasonable question, and then he's going to expect that God's going to clean up his mess after him and make everything uh, go well and fix everything and um, presumably, let him. Um, presumably, let him um, stay out, out all night and partying, and getting drunk, and then uh, essentially expect him to pay for his insurance too and give him a roof over his head. And that's what Cain is doing. So, Cain's expecting a free pass and God to clean up all of his mess and. And uh, to fix everything while he is violating God's standard and not owning anything or making responsibility. So what does God do? Uh, You see the divine enforcement of the curse. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now there's been much uh, ado made about the kind of mark that's put on Cain. Um, What is that? What kind of mark is that? Uh, how does that work? How does that function? I, I think the reality is we don't know what kind of mark uh, that is. Um, but then the truth is, in this sort of way, you see God showing grace to Cain that's undeserved and unmerited. But at the same time, it, it while it's an act of grace to prevent other people from uh, murdering him in the way that he... Uh, murdered his brother that would be just and that would be right and there's going to be prescriptions even within the law that are going to um, demand an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth a life for a life Uh, the law lex talionis or just punishment there's capital punishment uh, prescriptions within the law that are right and good Uh, so there's a there's a graciousness here that god shows to cain but i the, the the first um impulse it's not really that this is graciousness so much as it's uh, although there's an element of that there's also a divine enforcement of the consequences of Cain's action and so I mean in some sense like you think about the life that Cain has to um, look forward to or you're going to have a, a life of constant worry and 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 uh, concern and anxiety and Everything else related to the reality that you've done something so awful, and you're going to have um, people coming to get you forever. And and Cain realizes that the the uh, the consequences of what he's done in that kind of framework too, and that's why he expects God to deliver him from those consequences. And the reality is God doesn't deliver him from the consequences of his actions. And he's he's basically uh, this is an example of God saying, "You sow to the flesh; you're going to reap to the flesh." corruption and and you don't get an easy out by having someone take your life you're going to spend the rest of your life dealing with the consequences of this sort of thing being uh, further driven away from uh, my presence in the garden and being functionally estranged by uh, your family and the people that you know forever Uh, so you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer you're not going to enjoy the same kind of relationships that you have enjoyed uh, before you did this now presumably there's a Good number of other people that are alive uh, at this point, uh, which ought really to be no shock if it only takes nine months to have a baby, and um, and we are very far removed at this point from the beginning of the uh, very far removed at this point from the beginning of creation. So there's at this point, there, there's a good number of people on the earth. Um, Cain is going to flee, presumably with his wife, who's one of his sisters. Um, they're going to form a city in the north east of Eden and, you know, hunker out over there. Uh, and, and, you know, you see the start of a religious war of sorts that I've already talked about. But I think in the first instance, what you're going to find in this passage is a divine enforcement of of the curse, uh, instead of just enjoying good relationships and uh, and love between uh, him and his family, uh, harmonious society. What you see is that sin has a very significant cost that is going to be felt throughout the scope of his entire life, uh, and uh, ultimately, you're going to see uh, felt uh, in the afterlife as well. So. Uh, What are the consequences of the curse? Well, verse 16 says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So the consequences of the curse are uh, significant. Um, Now, man is made, he's put in a garden, he's created to enjoy fellowship with his maker As a result of sin, there is a fundamental separation that happens between us and God. Uh, There's a broken relationship. Instead of um, relating to God in the way that we ought to, we become his enemies, become objects of his wrath, awaiting a final day of just punishment. Um, Throughout the scripture, one of the things that you're going to find is you're going to find sin as being described as, as, as a is a thing which separates us further from our God. Uh, This is pictured in terms of Adam and Eve in the garden after they sin. It's a physical distancing uh, between them and God. They're cast out of Eden, away from God's presence. So there's a relational break there. The same language is picked up here as well. Uh, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, which was in Eden. Uh, he's going to settle in a different place, uh, isolated from God and from his family member. You're going to see that same language picked up in Jonah. Uh, Jonah's going to run from God in the same kind of way, away from God's presence, not wanting to be obedient and faithful to God. The consequence of this curse is, is always going to be a separation of sorts. Now, it doesn't end there. Um, I mean, it doesn't end as just a physical uh, separating or a relational break, I mean, in that kind of way. I mean, the reality is that we, you know, for many years have told people that, like, if they pray a prayer and walk an aisle, that they're going to be um, able to have a personal relationship with God or that kind of thing. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, the reality is everyone has a personal, everyone who's a person has a personal relationship with God. Uh, The the issue is not, like, if I get saved, I'm going to have a personal relationship with God, the issue is what kind of personal relationship with God do I want? Uh, do I want a good relationship with God where God um, is uh, pleased with me and uh, is not going to hold my sin against uh, against my account, do I want that kind of personal relationship with God or do I want the kind of personal relationship with God where I'm going to be an object of his wrath forever and ever as fully expressed in eternal conscious torment in hell. So like, the reality is that there are consequences of uh, violating God's standard. The, the immediate consequence for, for Adam and Eve is there's a relational uh, estrangement you know you don't have the same kind of access to god that you had before Um, you don't have you know just purely uh, thoughts of trust and love and and everything else you you have fear of judgment and condemnation and guilt and shame and uh, things that are happening after that so your relationship with god has been messed up in certain ways that doesn't mean it ceases to exist it's been messed up because of sin Uh, but then the reality is that that like what happens to Adam and Eve is after they sin, they are going to die. You, you know, you, 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 the reality is they're going to be subject to the law of entropy just like everyone else. Their body is going to be wasting away, they're going to get old, their uh, bodies are going to fall apart, um, their eyesight's are, eyesight is going to be diminished um, Everything that is described the end of the book of yes is going to happen to them uh, dying they're they're going to die, so there's a physical death that's going to happen, but then that physical death and that physical relational uh, estrangement is is ultimately going to be pictured in in a spiritual way in hell forever and ever and ever, not to say that hell's not going to also have physical components uh, there will be bodies that are fit for destruction It's just to say that there's there's more than just the temporary physical Punishment. I mean, and the reality is, we're all um, we are all uh, the kind of beings who are not just uh, when, when we do come into existence. We will live forever. Uh, the issue is what happens at death: is our body and our soul are separated. Our soul is separated from our body, uh, but then one day we're going to, you know, face uh, either the wrath of God. Um, not at all diminished or we, we're going to escape that as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so the, the reality is there are consequences to Cain's actions uh, that, that are going to be felt the immediate but, but then are also going to be experienced for eternity. Uh, Jude uh, mentions this kind of situation as it relates to false people false teachers following in the example of Cain. It says, These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. And so uh, one of the things you, you see even within this passage is that Cain is presented as the, you know, the first example of, of an individual who is going to experience God's wrath for eternity and hell. Cain is pictured in that kind of way. So what seems maybe like immediate uh, grace and mercy, really Cain is not going to get away with this. And he is the first example of the seed of the serpent who is making war against the seed of the woman. And he's going to experience that bitter fruit for the rest of his life and for all eternity. And that ought to be the kind of thing that we look at and we say... Uh, we think about our own life in that kind of relationship, um, to that kind of uh, framework and that kind of story. Uh, God is a righteous judge, and his priorities will not uh, be thwarted. He knows what he is doing. Um, we, we think we can get away with things. We think that maybe he isn't watching, that he doesn't care, uh, and that he's not looking. But the reality is that he, 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 will, um, he sees what we're doing. We can't hide anything from his sight. Uh, he, he knows whether or not um, we are going to respond to his good news in faith and repentance. He knows the ones who, who will. And the only reason we will do that is by a work of grace in our own hearts that he gives us. Uh, but we're not going to get away with anything. And I think that's the fundamental lie of sin. The fundamental lie of sin from the start and from the very beginning is that you can, you can live however you want to live. And not experience consequences, whether here or now, or whether in eternity. And that is the kind of thing that God, uh, the kind of perspective that God doesn't share. Uh, sin always has a cost, uh, whether temporal or eternal. And and really, the only hope that we do have to escape God's uh, just punishment is. To, to look at our wretched situation, our wretched, fallen situation, and instead of doubling down and tripling down and quadrupling down as Cain does, um, instead of doing all that, the, the, really the, the, you have Cain distancing himself from God by further complicating his problem and doubling down, tripling down, and everything else. Uh, but then the reality is, when you think about the, the other line that we're going to be talking about over the next week, one of the things that you see is that uh, verse 25 Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth for she said, God appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him to Seth also was born a son. Or, to also uh, Seth was also a son was born and he called his name Enish and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you see two lines there that are going to happen one line is going to further and further, double down, triple down, distance himself from God. And another line is going to see the fundamental reality that we all stand as objects of God's wrath, and it makes no sense to keep on um, believing the same basic lie our parents believed, that we can get away with sin, that sin has no consequences. But what we have to do is cry out to God for mercy and grace, and he is the kind of God who is eager to give us grace that we don't deserve if we ask. And so that's the message of, that we ought to learn from Cain today: is that uh, you can you have a living example of an individual who didn't learn the lesson that he ought to learn from Adam and Eve, and, and, and instead of uh, turning to God and seeking God, he further and further distanced himself from God by further sin and further distrust. Um, and that is not the way we ought to take. Let's close our time here today in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have. to th-